Howdy, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Cowboys of the Osage podcast, brought to you by the Ben Johnson Cowboy Museum, located in historic downtown Pahuska, Oklahoma. It's old Cody over here, and as always, well, I usually introduce him as Mr. Rodeo Historian himself, but I'm going to just introduce him as my good old buddy Jimbo today. Hey, Jimbo, how you doing, and who do we have? Hey, Cody boy. It's just another great day in the Osage, man. And, Cody, uh, we've got uh, Gail Warner who is the foremost rodeo historian in the country. I mean, that's, not, that's hands down. There's no even debate on that as far as I'm concerned. She's written five books and I think got two more in the works. And uh, she's uh, won the Western Heritage Award at the Texas Rodeo Hall of Fame. She's won the American Cowboy Culture Award, the Will Rogers Medallion Award for Western Nonfiction. Uh, chairman of the oral history project down at the rodeo historical society and uh we're just really glad to have her and we're going to get into all that stuff and and uh gail welcome to the uh cowboys of the osage podcast hi i thank you for asking me to be on your podcast uh that title's getting way too long we need to shorten that a little bit. I want to talk more about history. <laughs> yeah, you bet. We will. Well, Gail, Jimbo's head was getting too big with this rodeo historian stuff, so we had to bring out the big guns to, to bring him back down to earth. Right. I'm just B team. You're you're the in the major leaguer on rodeo historian. Well, now, thank you for that compliment. But let me tell you, when somebody starts calling you a rodeo historian, the first thing you learn is that you don't know everything. There's always so much more that you need to learn. Uh, my research is just unending, and uh, I'll be the first to admit it if I don't know something. So, But it's been a, a great ride. Uh, I've done a lot of research, and I've found a lot of things in the history of rodeo, and uh, it keeps me excited about rodeo. Well, I bet. Uh, you were raised in Colorado. Uh, did you have a, any of your family have a rodeo background, or how did you get so interested in rodeo? No, I didn't. Uh, there, there was no one in my family that rodeoed, but my grandfather was an old cowboy, and he and his and my grandmother lived on the ranch. Their house was just right next to ours, and I'm an only child, and I spent a lot of time with my grandfather growing up. Uh, my dad was an only child. I'm an only child, and consequently, my grandfather got me the only grandchild he had, so I had to take the part of, you know, a grandson or a granddaughter. It didn't matter. We just uh, rode horses and <clears throat> did things together my whole whole uh, life growing up with him. With him. And uh, he actually uh, started in uh, Iowa and went to Saskatchewan, Canada, uh, just before World War One. And when it happened, uh, he sent my grandmother and my dad down to Colorado where her parents were had homesteaded and then he cowboyed down from Saskatchewan and when he first got to Colorado he worked for other uh, ranchers and uh, took care of ranches and eventually ended up buying all of the the ranch that my uh, my my paternal grandmother's family had and uh, so uh, my dad, mother, and I were raised there. That's all there is to it, you know. So that's that was my upbringing. And rodeo was uh, what I would say takes the place took uh, the place for us of football or baseball. Uh, 
we went to rodeos, we went to horse races, we went to anything western. Uh, Cheyenne was 120 miles away, uh, Denver was 120 miles away, and then all the little uh, pumpkin rollers all around northeastern Colorado, Nebraska, Kansas, Wyoming, uh, we were there. My dad and my grandfather went to all the big roping stuff in Laramie, uh, and uh, they liked paramutual betting. And uh, uh, unfortunately, they didn't invite me, but <clears throat> I was too young, I guess. Right. Well, uh, then you moved to Texas. and uh... Yes, I moved to Texas right after I got out of college. And uh, I lived in Houston for uh, 20 years, and then I moved to Austin. I, I divorced and married <clears throat> my present husband, and he's uh, uh, a big Western history buff. And uh, I just kind of picked up for those 20 years. I didn't do anything in the Western world. And uh, I had written a book about my home community, which was just a tiny little place in northeastern Colorado called Willard, Colorado, a special place in time. And uh, uh, just last year, there was a video made of it and uh, by a, a professor up in Abilene, uh, Texas, and uh, it was uh, uh, premiered in Sterling, Colorado, the county seat, in a blizzard in October of last year. And there were 102 people there, <laughs> even though it was blizzard in northeastern Colorado out on the plains. And that doesn't happen very often. But anyway, I helped him put that together. And, and that started my rodeo career because after I wrote that book and published it myself, because uh, I was an unknown person in the publishing business, in the writing business, and uh, it was about uh, Colorado, my book on Willard was about Colorado, I knew that uh, I wouldn't get any place with a publisher, so um, I uh, published it myself, but then I wanted to write again. I wanted to write another book. The first one was so much fun. And I had a friend, an acquaintance named George Doak, and he had told me about his career as a rodeo clown, bullfighter, very well-known, PRCA, uh, had quite a long career, 28 years, I believe. And uh, he got me interested in the history of rodeo clowns, and he knew nothing about the history of the rodeo clown. And I found out there wasn't a clown in the, in the uh, rodeo that knew anything about their history. That wasn't their interest. They didn't think. So I took six years and put, the book, put together Fearless Funny Men, my first rodeo book. And it's the history of the rodeo clown. And uh, I published it. Uh, I didn't publish it. I, I sent it to publishers, and it was picked up by Aiken Press and came out in 1993. And I might as well say the rest is history. I just kept writing about uh, different parts of rodeo from that time on and researching and finding it. Uh, because the only books that I generally could find were books written about specific people in rodeo and they're wonderful they're they're absolutely wonderful but foghorn clancy wrote my 50 years in rodeo and i really enjoyed that book and used it a lot in in my research and uh, there were several others that were written back in the 
uh, late forties, early fifties. And, uh, then there wasn't anybody writing and doing what I did. Uh, so I just kept doing it. Uh, Right. I'm sorry. We're I'm so doing glad all you did. Well, that's fine. <laughs> we want to hear from you. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We're so glad you did because I mean, um, who would who who would keep track of this if somebody didn't? So that's the uh, we 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 love this Western way of life, and we we especially love rodeo around here for sure. Hey, Gail. First things first. I got to ask you a question. Go In ahead. Your professional opinion. What what was the first rodeo? We need to get that out of the way. Was it well, Pecos? Was it my, Prescott? Was it Vernal? Where was it? Well, as a as a rodeo historian, I think that we'll never know where the first rodeo was because rodeo wasn't rodeo in the beginning. Rodeo was a spontaneous uh, event between two people. It could have been bronc riding. It could have been roping. But... Uh, I feel that the only way we'll ever know, uh, we won't, we won't ever know where the first rodeo was, where the first little event was. Deer Trail uh, claims it uh, questionable. I question that. Uh, I think as far as keeping records, uh, Prescott's probably got the, the oldest rodeo but there were you have to understand back in those days there was just very little written and uh there was when it was written it was more about the people than what we have as far as uh information today and uh i think it happened spontaneously it began at a fourth of july gathering because that in many areas was the only time cowboys ever got a day off because they, they'd be assigned, maybe they'd be assigned to a herd of cattle up in, by a, the rancher, uh, and they may not come back down out of the mountains or out of the hills for three months. And uh, so the 4th of July was pretty uh, generally all over the United States was a day off. And in small towns in the West, they'd get together and and under, if they had a tree, uh, in northeastern Colorado, they didn't have a whole lot of trees, but they found, find one, hopefully a cottonwood or something like that. And they'd have a, a dinner and every, all the ladies would bring fried chicken and, and other, uh, fixings. And the cowboys would have come from all the places near and far. And then somebody, they'd have a ball game. They'd play ball, uh, baseball, and then somebody'd start bragging about how good they were or how good somebody was, and somebody'd challenge them, and then you had a, a competition on your hands. And a few creative people started from there, and uh, it, it just evolved. And in the beginning, there was no rules, no nothing to it. It wasn't a full-blown rodeo, and as a historian, the biggest problem with determining is, did you have to pay money for uh, who won? Did you have to have a crowd? Uh, did you have to have what events? Uh, there wasn't any rules in the beginning. It just kind of got together with whatever they had available. Am I making myself clear? Yes, ma'am. Absolutely. Okay. Okay. So, I, so really... Um, Prescott had 
has the most credentials. There's a book out on it. It's probably out of print, but I'll bet you can find it on Amazon or somewhere in in vintage books. But uh, it, it has the most information, let's put it that way, that was uh, saved, collected, and uh, put in a book. Uh, a lot of these places did not save uh, their information. And, of course, today we're so inundated with information you know, we're, we're, it's hard to decide which we need and which we don't. And uh, so anyway, that's, that's my answer. I can't answer that. I never will. Uh, I think that, uh, that it uh, probably happened somewhere where there wasn't a newspaper, there wasn't anybody to write about it and promote it, and, and we don't know. So that's my, my statement on that. Well, thank you. I learned a lot from I'm that. I'm sorry to disappoint you. <laughs> well, I was hoping I was hoping for Pecos, but Prescott, I, I, it was it was my second choice. I'm hoping. So. Well, well, Pecos uh, did not continue consistently, and as far as Pecos, I mean Prescott, there were a couple of years that they did not have their rodeos the way they that everybody does now. In other words, the the fastest time or the best judged uh, uh, rough stock ride wins the event, they paid everybody that, that competed. And it was, it was uh, something that the Cowboy Turtles didn't like and wouldn't go to it. So if you want to say the one that continued the longest and never had a break, um, Prescott did, but it wasn't the same kind of rules for a few for a couple of years. So um, you know, it it determines what, and I don't know who's going to make that decision. I'm not uh, as to what constitutes a real rodeo. I love the fact that it just kind of started helter skelter. And evolved, and I, I, you know, what we're doing today in rodeo, the money these uh, cowboys and cowgirls can make, is absolutely amazing, and something that twenty years ago we didn't think would ever happen. Well, it's been a long time but, coming. Well, but it has taken a lot of try by a lot of people and dedication, and that's one thing about rodeo is it's a unique sport. They fought for a hundred years or more to get the rodeo on the sports pages of the newspapers, and it's still not there except in a few places. And and it's because it's not uh, like all the other sports. It it evolved strictly from what a cowboy did on the ranch, and and so you know I mean we've got bull riding, which wasn't a job. But I'll bet there isn't a cowboy that didn't ride something. Heck, I even rode a cow, and I rode a. Uh, I had a steer that that I had. Uh, uh, I didn't break it, but my ranch hands did, and I rode that longhorn steer around, and I and had a wonderful time. And when I was a kid, I rode pigs, Shetland uh, ponies, and anything that came into our arena uh, at the at the ranch. Uh, I was going to get on it. So, you know, I feel like every cowboy wants to know he can do, you know, he can ride anything. To me, a rodeo would be explained as a contest between cowboys, but it would be more than one event. 
Yeah. Uh, what do you reckon the first events were, Gail? I'm hoping stair roping and saddle bronc riding. That's what I got my fingers crossed on. Okay. I I, I have, I, I'm going to tell you something. I have a computer pal. It's not a pen pal. It's a computer pal. He writes to me every day. His name is William McLeod. He's from Nova Scotia. And he's autistic. And he is very determined to be a, a, uh, a calf roper. And Joe Beaver is his hero, John Wayne and John Denver. And he writes to me every day, and I write to him. When he writes, I write back to him. He asks a lot of questions. He is a ma- an amazing young man. He's 32 years old. And uh, he's bound and determined he's going to uh, uh, compete in the national finals. And I keep telling him that you have to be one of the top 15 in the, wor- in the, in the country to, to be able to do this. But in his mind, that's, that's what he is doing. He is so connected to that. And just like every roper, you know, I don't think there's a roper alive that ever feel, felt like he had the perfect roping. They're going to do it better next time. And uh, I, just, I just love that attitude in our sport, the commitment. I think that I'm going to tell you what I wrote him the other day. <clears throat> he said he thought that, that calf roping was, the, uh, roping was the first sport. And I said, you got to have a horse, and you got to break that horse. So I'm going to say that I think bronc riding was probably the first because you got to break a horse. No doubt. Okay. So, but I think calf roping or not calf roping, steer, roping in general was, was second. But somebody had to break that horse and it's usually the cowboy that rides it. So anyway, today that's not the case, but back in the, in, in the days I live in, <laughs> that was the way it was done. So anyway. Gil, let's go back to the clowns a minute. Uh, Cody, always aspired to be a clown and and uh, they've always been of interest to me too i always thought and you can correct me if i'm wrong but the the early day clowns were probably rodeo performers or had been or maybe they still were and they just stepped in and helped out a little bit they weren't specialized like they are now what about the history of the clowns well you're exactly right uh, most of them were cowboys that were standing around. When when rodeo started, there were no clowns. Uh, but when one of the early producers, and it's obvious you've never read my book, Fearless Funny Man, because you can read this in that book. We sell it here <laughs> in the museum too, Jimbo. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, uh, what I what I the way I wrote it is that the first producer that charged money. And it may not have been the first, but he learned quite quickly uh, to to charge money to come and watch a rodeo. And back in those days, a rodeo would go on not two hours like they have it today, but they, it may go on four hours, six hours. You know, who knows? If a, uh, something broke, they fix a, a fix a. Uh, some, whatever was broke, they'd, they'd have that uh, cowboy that got bucked off laying out there, passed out. They'd wait till he woke up. And, and the producer saw his audience leaving, going to their wagon, going to their horse or whatever it was they came on. And he grabbed a cowboy and he said, 
Will you get out there and do something to make that that make the audience stay in their seats? Uh, be funny. Do something. Do something. And he didn't know what he wanted done, and you know what? That appealed to some guys. Some guys didn't do it, or they did it once and didn't do it again. And then they got to thinking about what they'd wear. Maybe be funny. Uh, I contend that the early day rodeo clown got his adrenaline rush, just like the roper, just like the bronc rider did, but he got it from the laughter from the audience. And uh, he found that he was better at that, or maybe he wasn't. Maybe he competed right along with uh, doing his clowning. But you didn't get your bullfighter until they started using brainless. They didn't have a, They didn't have bullfighters in the beginning. There wasn't a need for it. The the steers and old cows with horns or whatever they used for uh, the bull riding was uh, in a lot of places was just an exhibition. It, they didn't even pay an entry fee or anything. In fact, the producer paid the cowboy to get on. I've had cowboys tell me that they rode five or six uh, uh, steers in in one rodeo because there weren't any other guys that would do it. And he'd get a dollar a head or, or, you know, it might have been even more than that. But uh, money was tight in those days. And those guys, there were always some guys that would do it. But they wanted to, sh- and why did they have this steer riding? I think because they wanted to show that a cowboy could ride anything. And uh, look what it's evolved into once the Brahma Bull was introduced to it. Yeah, yeah, look at the PBR now. Uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah. You know, speaking so, of, go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, I'm, I was just going to mention, I remember as a kid seeing Wilbur Plotter. He was a real good bull, bulldogger, and he would bulldog in his uh, baggy pants with his makeup on. Mm-hmm. You know. Junior Meek did that, too. He was a bulldogger and a bullfighter. And uh, there are several that yeah. that did you know, did compete. Um, um, Melvin Fields competed for a long time and was a barrel man. And uh, of course the barrel, you know, that didn't happen until Jasbo invented it because he was so short legged. He got tired of having the, the Jasbo, Jasbo Fulkerson. Okay. And he lived up around Fort Worth somewhere. And, uh, Jasbo was a bullfighter to start with, but, uh, he couldn't get to the fence as fast as the bull did, and he finally decided he had to have some kind of a uh, place to hide or whatever. And so he saw an old wooden barrel, and he got that out and, and uh, uh, fixed it up and, and fixed it up, just, you know, uh, had it out there and, of course, found out that every time a bull uh, would hit it, uh, it'd break apart and he'd have to put it back together. And, uh, uh, but it had the bottom in it. I don't know if you knew that or not, but, uh, there, it wasn't open at both ends. You're trapped in it. Uh, yeah. And he got trapped in there a couple of times. And, and so did Jimmy Schumacher when, when, uh, Jasbo got killed in a truck accident in a, in the winter, uh, up by Fort Worth. He, uh, Jimmy had traveled with, uh, Jasbo and he took over, uh, his, you know, where he was supposed to go after he passed away and uh he got a bull's head in there and the horn you know kind of messed him up a little bit and 
he was sitting there in his, by that time they had trailer houses and traveled in trailer houses, but those clowns had to do a lot of things. They had to be funny and bullfight in the early days. And, and this is, this is not the way it is today. In fact, bullfighters don't want to be called rodeo clowns, but you know what? Facts are stubborn things. <laughs> the bullfighter started out as a rodeo clown that when the Brahma started and was such a tough guy, a, a tough uh, animal and went right for the, the rider, the producer knew he wasn't going to get anybody who was going to ride bulls if he didn't get somebody to get out there and distract that bull so that the rider could get to the uh, fence once he either bucked off or finished his ride. And so he turned around, and who did he turn to? He turned to the rodeo clown, the funny man. All of a sudden, he says, you get out there in front of that bull and distract him so the rider can get to the fence. And I'm sure the first one said, you want me to do what? (laughs) Because it was the most paradoxical thing you can think. Think of it. You know, one minute you want him to be a hero and an athlete, but before that, you want him to be a buffoon, make fun of himself, do stupid things, and make the audience laugh. It's pretty interesting profession, I would say. Yeah. And it is. And back in those days, they had a lot of animals, a lot of things, including their barrel. But they may have a little outhouse that they'd put out in the arena and uh, do something. Uh, Charlie uh, Lyons had a, a big. Uh, a tub, a wash tub, and he put it on a bronc, cinched it on, and put a little uh, uh, baby powder inside that thing, and he'd come out and ride in that barrel, and he said it was terribly painful <laughs> hitting the sides of that barrel. I've seen that and, at the prison rodeo before, yeah, Jim. And, and, and the, the powder would just, you know, fly out and, and make it make it quite a scene and he had other clowns wanting to use his his act uh, but he said nobody ever stayed with it because they found out how how much it hurt to ride in that barrel of, on a bucking horse right. so and you know a lot of people might not know that slim Pickens started out as a well he actually was a bronc rider i think but then he got to be a rodeo clown you know before he got in the movies and oh yeah Oh, yeah. And the only reason he stopped was because uh, his contract for movies, and they paid so much better, uh, said he could not be a rodeo clown because it was too dangerous. Right. My dad. And and it is. I mean, look what happened to Dusty Tuckness, you know, and and uh, but they know that they know what it is. And, and, uh, you know, they get their adrenaline rush saving a cowboy. I think Cody. Rider. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was mm-hmm. just going to say, Cody wanted to be a barrel man. I sh- I kind of misspoke when I said he wanted to be. A f- don't don't what's misunderstand. Wrong with you, Cody? Do what, ma'am? I said, what's wrong with you, Cody? Well, Quell Dobbs was my hero growing up. Oh, how wonderful! And uh, he was just a great man. We'd see him. You know, I we get to all those rodeos. I grew up a rodeo kid. We grew up on the rodeo trail. My mom and my dad both rodeoed for a living. And, you know, I'd, I'd go hang out with the clowns when we got to the rodeo. So I'd, I I always hung out with Quell Dobbs or Leon Coffee or Sage Kimsey's dad. We've, well, there's some, those are some of the best. They, they uh, really are. But you want to hear and, something? Uh, you want to hear something bad, though, Gail? Listen to this. 
this is how crazy it was. My grandpa was a gambler growing up and a, and a bookie. And there was a, a man got out of prison and moved in with him, and his name was Buddy Heaton. He lived, with my, he lived over there with my grandpa for a long time, right when he got out of prison. Do you, got, do you know anything on old Buddy Heaton? <laughs> I have probably heard more Buddy Heaton stories uh, than any other clown, uh, including the governor of Kansas. He gave me some stories. And I talked to Buddy on the phone, and I, I put on Rodeo Clown Reunion, and I inherited this them. I didn't start it. It was started by Carl Doring out in Roseburg, Oregon in 1974. And every third year during the Umpqua Valley uh, Rodeo, which is there at Roseburg, uh, and that's where Carl lived, and Carl had, was a rodeo clown bullfighter. And he started it, and, and the old-timers would all come to this reunion. Well, when I went to it, when I was writing that book in 1989, it had, it had re- really, uh, the, the numbers weren't coming anymore. And Roseburg isn't real easy to get to either. But 1989 was the last one they held there. I attended it. It uh, was quite an eye-opener. I met a lot of clowns I had not known before, uh, especially from the West. And uh, the next, two years later, uh, after that, Jack Sauls, who was a 40-year committee man uh, in the Columbia Circuit, of PRCA, uh, held it at Moses Lake, Washington, and I attended that. And at that one, there were only, I think, 11 uh, clowns there. And they have it during a rodeo, and they are introduced, and they just entertain them for two or three days, however long the rodeo lasts. And they had a meeting. The clowns had a meeting. And they invited me to attend because I was writing this book and taking lots of notes from all of them and, you know, doing my research. And um, they said they were, they were going to give it up in the Northwest and see, but they'd like to have some of us from the central part of the United States to, to see what could be done with it. And Jim Hill, Wayne and Cecil Cornish were there. And John Temple, I can't tell you who else, but I, I said, I'll help. So the first one that we had in 1993 was at, uh, well, now it escapes me, Mul- not Mulhall, right north north of Oklahoma City. Where's, where's the Lazy E? Guthrie. Guthrie. Guthrie, yes. We stayed at Guthrie, and uh, it was in conjunction with the 89er Days, which is there in Guthrie, but the rodeo is in at the Lazy E. And we also went uh, during it uh, to the um, uh, National Cowboy and Western Heritage Museum and had a tour. And we went to Remington Park and had a clown mule race. And uh, it was uh, instant success. Uh, The one thing that I didn't realize until I was there is that basically I was having it. Those clowns have a way of getting other people to do things for them, and and so that I didn't, I wasn't asked to do it. I ended up with it, and so now I've had sixteen rodeo clowns, uh, rodeo clown reunions, 
all over the United States, generally the Midwest, but we've gone to Pendleton, Oregon, and we've gone to Deadwood, and we've gone to Springdale, Arkansas, and we've gone to Dodge City, and and <clears throat> as I say, Oklahoma City, we went to Stephenville, Texas, and, and uh, so uh, Colorado Springs, we've been there twice, we've been to Santa Fe three times for their rodeo. And we've been to Deadwood twice, and the rest of them have all been one-time things. But it's in conjunction with the rodeo. And last year we went to Colorado Springs and the Pro Rodeo Hall of Fame and a Museum of the American Cowboy held for one day. And then the next two days it was held at um, Castle Rock at their Douglas County Fair and Rodeo. And I had 45 retired rodeo clowns there. And they have more fun, and they participate, and uh, uh, they still love to put on their clown outfit and makeup. And, um, uh, I, uh, oh, tell me, who was who your, not Wilbur, but um, Quail. Quail came just before he passed away. Uh, he came to uh, one clown reunion after he retired. I, I know you probably know he had a, a, a position with the government and couldn't travel and do things like he wanted to do. But when he got you know older, he did. And he came to the one at Santa Fe and had a wonderful time. And uh, Jerry Olson came, uh, people that, I've, that have been deceased, um, it's been long in coming. That was in 1993, and I held the last the, the the last one I had was last year, 2021. So it's it's a fun event. I write a newsletter to old rodeo clowns, and I either do it monthly or uh, less, depending on what kind of uh, news I have. I had to put one out real quick this week because Jim Hill passed away on Saturday and they're having his funeral tomorrow. So that went out several days ago. And a a lot of people receive it online too, uh, at Rodeo Clowns. And uh, uh, that's something I do for the clowns. They're very dear to my heart and probably always will be. So. Mine too. Are you still there? Oh yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You know, we have a a local clown here that, He's uh, got a display here in the museum by the name of Buck LeGrand. He was from Osage County. Oh, yes. Buck was dear. Buck was dear. And I I talked to his son, Bucky, a lot. And I have interviewed at the National Cowboy and Western Heritage Museum for their oral history program. I've interviewed Buck and Gary Parly, who learned from Buck LeGrand, and uh, uh, Jim Hill. And they've all... Uh, done an interview about Buck LeGrand, which is on, uh, you know, on a, on a uh, audio and video uh, at the. It's a, it's a video interview with the three guys that met me there in Oklahoma City, and and we did the interview. So, anyway, got a lot of a lot of information about the rodeo clowns, but these other books that I've done have made me spread my my interest in my, you know, my heroes are in all events. So, right. you know, well, uh, they're not. Rodeo rocked along there pretty good. Got Just got stronger in the 20s, but they needed some rules. They needed some uh, better judging, and, and that's when the uh, 
Rodeo Association of America, is that right? In 29, they started to try to, they were a group of, what were they, what were they all about, Gail? Well, the Rodeo Association of America were, were people who put on rodeos. Right. And the people at the head of that, the ones who started it, were attorneys and, and uh, uh, professional businessmen. And uh, they did uh, four, and they had quite a few uh, uh, of the larger rodeos, uh, and, and small, too, that joined RAA. It started in 1929. And uh, it did put a lot more uniformity into the RAA rodeos because they had rules that they had to have certain events and they had certain rules and regulations that had kind of been ignored. But you know what they didn't have? They didn't have a cowboy that had that was on their board. Right. And the cowboy had no say. Right. And so the cowboy kept going to rodeos and paying their entry fee, but the entry fee was not put in the prize money that they got. And and the cowboy was smart enough to think, well, gosh, if I'm paying an entry fee and all these other guys are going to be in my event, why don't they put that in the in the uh, amount of money that we can win? So when we do win something, we can get to the next rodeo. Uh, the, sometimes the, the prize money wasn't great and, uh, that they kept telling the producers, but the producers knew that those cowboys that rodeoed were so, uh, willing to rodeo and go to rodeos that they knew that even if they didn't pay them anything, they'd probably still show up. That's the truth. uh, (laughs) Well, it's an obsession. It becomes an obsession, and when you think of the cowboy on the ranch, that and and in the early days, those were the only people that that competed. Today, you've got uh, all kinds of, of professional people that that rodeo, and uh, but uh, the in the early days, a cowboy that competed usually didn't own the ranch he worked on, and he was assigned and had specific rules. Uh, you know, to do either he had a herd of cattle or, or maybe he was handling fence and, and windmills and making sure everybody, all the all the stock had water or whatever his job was. Uh, he, it was pretty, sometimes it was pretty lonesome. And going to rodeos, going to different towns, having other cowboys that have the same likes you do, what a great thing that is if you can make some money at it. And there were lots of them, and still are. They don't make enough money, but they still try. But but back in those days, they were uh, determined to do that. And at, at the time, and we're talking about uh, the cowboys not having any say in rodeos and how they're run and how they're paid. And uh, they talked about it for 20 years before they ever did anything about it, but they didn't know what to do. And they get together at a rodeo, and they tell the producer that was putting it on, or the rodeo committee, or whatever. And and when it was over, they'd all leave, and one went east, one went west, one went south, and one went north. And and maybe they wouldn't see each other again for six months, or they may have seen each other the next week someplace. But they worked together enough, and they they got no answers, or they got no's from every producer. Colonel Johnson from San Antonio was 
came along in the late twenties, and and uh, by thirty one, he got uh, to having the biggest rodeos, and he had the most money because he'd been a banker and owned about four ranches, one in Mexico and three uh, in New Mexico and Texas, and and uh, he had the the best stock. He could pay more money for the best broncs and and uh, the best uh, roping calves and steers and and what have you and. He just ignored him. He was not a cowboy. And most of your producers were cowboys at one time, but he wasn't a cowboy. And, and none of them paid any attention to the ca- cowboys complaining. And in 1935, when they went to the Fort Worth Rodeo, which was a big rodeo and an important one, and there were a lot of people there, they put a petition together and said, unless the entry fees were put into the prize money, they were not going to ride in the parade. And the parade kicked off that that rodeo. And it was in the afternoon, and then the first rodeo was that night. And the committee uh, for the rodeo said, we can't do that. We just can't. Well, they held their ground, the cowboys and cowgirls held their ground at that rodeo. And they didn't... Uh, uh, it came time for the parade, and the streets were lined with little children and their parents, and they're looking for everybody, and then nothing is happening. And 45 minutes afterwards, the committee finally put all the entry money, and I've got it in my book how much it was, and it, it was exactly how much entry money for every event was put into the, the, the prize money. And the cowboys and cowgirls got on their horses, rode in the parade, and had the the rodeo that night, and it went on like clockwork. But when they left the rodeo after it was over, and they they thought about it, and they thought, what well, what are we going to do? Are we going to do this at every rodeo we go to? We can't do that. And so they plotted and planned, and the next year, when Madison Square Garden had their rodeo, they were there almost a month at, in New York City at the Madison Square Garden rodeo. Madison Square Garden was the unofficial predecessor to the national finals. I call it. Nobody else. I mean, I'm, it's not official, but I think it was the biggest rodeo and had the most money. And it was at the end of the season. And, uh, all the cowboys and cowgirls that could get there would go because they had so many go-rounds and so much day money. And, and uh, uh, if you could win anything, uh, you, you were okay. And they, everybody wanted to go to New York because when it first arrived there, they were wined and dined by uh, society. And, and everybody was curious about a, a rodeo person in uh, New York City. And the the big hats and the fancy boots and the, the cowboy garb that they wore brought a lot of attention, and it was fun for cowboys and cowgirls. So anyway, while they were there behind closed doors the next year in 1936, they plotted and planned. And Colonel Johnson had a rodeo train, started in San Antonio and went all the way to Madison Square Garden. And a lot of those guys went on the rodeo train. It was a, a, a good way to get there, an inexpensive way. 
And uh, they were concerned about what if they struck against him. They were going to strike at Boston because after Madison Square Garden, about three or four days afterwards, they uh, they went to uh, Bo- uh, Colonel Johnson's stock and, and the World Championship Rodeo went to Boston Garden. And originally, Boston Garden was part of the, the Madison Square Garden Company. It didn't stay that way, but it was there, and it started in 1931. And, and uh, uh, so anyway, uh, they struck against him at Boston the, the uh, afternoon, gave him a petition with 61 names on it, and he just ignored it like he'd been doing for a few years before whenever they approached him about it. And so when uh, uh, the rodeo came that night, uh, unknown to anybody, somebody had bought all the tickets for him and all those cowboys were in the audience as the audience was there. And Colonel Johnson couldn't get anybody except the guys that mucked the stalls and and, uh, helped out, you know, just the hired help that he had. He sent a telegram to a rodeo that was held in Chicago and that he was going to pay big bucks if these cowboys would get there, but nobody could get there before the uh, rodeo that night. And uh, so the cowboys sat up there and booed every time there was a roper or a a bronc rider that fell off. They were up there booing, and pretty soon they had the whole audience booing. And the manager of Boston Guard told Colonel Johnson, if you don't agree to their terms you'll never have another rodeo here and so he stopped the rodeo paid gave everybody their money back in fact bart clennon a very well-known uh bronc rider that's been inducted in oklahoma city at the national cowboy and western heritage museum uh told me he said i got twenty dollars back it didn't cost that for a ticket but that's what i got back so, in other words, the, the Cowboys were paid that night, and the rodeo officially started the next day. And a few days later, they formed the Cowboy Turtle Association. They named it Turtles, I guess, because it took them so long to make a decision to, to form an organization. And they made rules about the entry fee. They made rules about... Um, I talked to the son of a man who held a rodeo in Beeville and Rusty McGinty called him from Boston and said, you better be paying a hundred dollars, uh, an event prize money, or you can't be a cowboy turtle association rodeo. And he said, I'm already doing that. So in other words, they had, they started having rules that had never been set before. And uh, they stuck to it, and they got into some trouble, and I have a book on it, and it's, it's uh, about the cowboy turtles and all of this. Uh, some of the cowboys that were turtle members would go to a rodeo the night before it started and complain about the judge. The judging, a lot of times, was not really the best judges, and uh, the cowboys would complain about it. The cowboys that rodeoed all the time were pretty unhappy when a local guy that they'd never heard of before would win the rodeo event they were in. And uh, come to find out, a lot of these little places would hire the sheriff 
they might hire a doctor. They might hire, you know, somebody that didn't have enough rodeo experience to really know what a good ride was or what a good roping was, or, and the timing was off. Mark Clennon said he was in my hometown, Sterling, Colorado, in 1938 or 39, and he was he had won the all-round and got the saddle. And Sterling's probably 12,000, 16,000 people at, at at now. So I don't know how, how it's 16,000 now, so I imagine it was smaller at that time. And uh, here came somebody from the committee out waving at his pickup, and uh, he said, uh, uh, roll down the window and Bart said, what, what's wrong? What, what's happened? And he said, well, we refigured, and you didn't win the all-round. And Bart said, who did? And it was a local guy, and he just reached around in the back of the pickup, picked up the saddle, threw it out on the ground, and drove off. (laughs) (laughs) And you know what Bart said about that? And I just loved Bart. Bart knew every Brooke fucking horse that there ever was. He was a, a bronc rider, saddle bronc rider, and uh, I had to call him a lot about things. But anyway, uh, uh, he told me, Bart told me uh, when I interviewed him, he said, you know, he says, I won some I probably shouldn't have won, and I didn't win some that I probably should have won. And he said, it all worked out for me. <laughs> so that's a pretty good attitude about that. Right, right. So. But the cowboy turtles did turn it around, and, and uh, some of the they got their rules all right, and and that's what evolved into the Rodeo Cowboy Association, which was the predecessor to the PRCA today. So, um, and that started in 1936, lasted nine years. 1945 in March, they changed the name, and they got a new president. And uh, uh, that's how RCA started. Gail always thought, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it just seemed like Everett Bowman might have got kind of a raw deal out of that. What was, what happened there? Well, you know that I'm going to make a general statement about cowboys. We've got cowboys that win what their goal is and quit, mm-hmm. and like Bobby Steiner or. Uh, uh, Sid winning the world and then they quit. And then you've got guys that stay with it for a long, long time, or you've got guys that stay with it for a while and totally support it and everything, and then finally retire. Uh, but uh, there are some people that probably do stay too long. And and Everett, uh, a lot of people don't know that Everett was not the first president. Rusty McGinty was the first president that was picked. For the Cowboy Turtle Association, but he had a family, and he, uh, I think, thought uh, thought about it overnight and turned him down, and said, "I can't take it. I got to make a living for my family, and I just can't do it." And Everett Bowman was the person that, and he had the presidency during the whole time, and he did a great deal for the Cowboy Turtle Association, and he was a good president. But he got a little long in the tooth, and he'd gotten involved with some other things locally, and he wasn't rodeoing anymore. And they decided that when they changed it, when they were talking, the cowboys that were on the board that were talking about needing a change in the name and in, you know, just making it more professional, uh, they uh, uh, 
told him, well, what they did is they, they made the secretary that lived in Phoenix, and I can't tell you what her name is now. I've forgotten it because I'm old. <laughs> and uh, I, uh, But she had to tell him that they were going to, to put a new president in. And it, it was kind of a raw deal. But once he thought about it, he realized that he kind of moved on, and it was time. Yeah. And so no hard feelings, no really? hard feelings. Well, that's I good. Think. I it think, just, yeah. just seemed kind of, you know, because he'd, he'd done so much for the Turtles, and then when they started the RCA, he was just kind of booted out, it seemed like. but, but Well, he they did, but, you know, they've honored him. They He's in the halls. He's, he's gotten recognition. A lot of it happened after he was gone, you know, but, but um, it, and what was said, we'll never know by right, different sure. people him and what he really felt. He might have, I think he was hurt because he wasn't in on the decision. Right, right. It's my understanding that, I mean, she wrote uh, a letter to the head of the National Cowboy and Western Heritage Museum at the time, and she wrote this letter to him. Uh, about having to do that and how difficult it was. And I, I'm i sorry, I can't think of her name right yeah, now. I, I know who you're talking about, and I can't think of it either, Gil. Yeah, but anyway. but but uh, And she did not continue with them because she, her home was in Phoenix. Yeah. And, and they, you know, they started in Fort Worth, and then they moved to Denver, and then they moved to Colorado Springs. So... I'd like, anyway. to, like to go back to that petition a minute. There was one name that was crossed out on that petition, uh, and I think it was Jimmy Nesbitt. Is that right? Who? Jimmy Nesbitt. Yes. 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 Uh-huh. And, but then he well, wound up as the number one turtle pin. How'd that happen? Well, he probably got his money out quicker than anybody else. He was from right well, over he here in Noala, just a little few miles yeah, east of us. Yeah, didn't he die in a um, house fire? fire? Yeah, and it was a little question, uh, questionable circumstances too. But that's another story. Well, yeah, and that I don't know about or care about really because right. <laughs> right. that that has nothing to do with rodeo. But but uh, Jimmy was paid by Colonel Johnson, right? And he he felt that the the turtles, which weren't the turtles when they signed the petition, but the cowboys were doing the right thing. He knew they had to be paid, but he was a paid employee. Uh, they paid clowns, and that's one of the things that when I started all this, George told me that there were times in his career that they kind of, the rodeo officials took things away from them that they had received before, that, and he, they, the clowns didn't really feel like that was very fair. And so there was a little, I think that's what got my attention. I wanted to see what, you know, what happened. And one of the things that, that George mentioned was that they had given them buckles for working the finals, and then they quit doing it. And, and they didn't give them the bullfighters uh, uh, buckles anymore. Uh, and at, at that time, at the time he was in there, and that really put a bad taste in their mouth. But, uh, you know, we're talking about a, a performer that's being paid and Colonel Johnson was who they were striking against in Boston. And he, he came back and marked his name out, but there's something else that happened there that I wanted to, I'll mention. Uh, if you'll look at, at the names on there 
everybody just kind of scribbled their names, and some of them are pretty hard to read. Right. And there was somebody on there, and I don't know who who started it, but it was they they called the the person Bob LaRoche. L E R O S H. And if you look at the the actual petition, uh, I got curious about it. I had never heard of a cowboy named Bob LaRoche. And I did quite a bit of research and uh, never found anything out. And there was one person that was very active at that time that was there in Madison Square Garden, but his name wasn't on that list, and I was surprised it wasn't. And it was Bob Crosby. And I got somebody uh, to do some research for me that I knew went back and did uh, found things in the early 1900s and the 20s, and they got me Bob Crosby's, um, well, his, his passport when they went to London in 1924 with a rodeo. Tex Austin took a, a, the first rodeo to London in 1924. His passport signature, and, and it was another one, I think, from a census, and, and she sent those to me, and I got several people that have the history bug like I do to look at it, and we compared it, and Bob Crosby's signature was so identical to that. And until I found that, and I don't remember what year I found that, uh, Jimbo, but uh, I, I wrote uh, an article for the sports news on that. And, and it was the first time anybody had ever done anything to, to you know, to prove that, that that signature was, in fact, Bob Crosby's. Right. Those are the things that I do that I get so excited about. Oh, yeah. To find that, that something that has been overlooked or ignored. And if anybody... You know, if somebody else could have said, well, I've never heard of him, you know, right, right. But, but they didn't do anything about it. Right. So, you know, that's one of the things my husband is, has paid dearly. Somebody asked him one time if I was making a lot of money by my books. And he said, she's costing me thousands of dollars. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and I told him later, I kidded him and I said, you know what, if I wasn't writing I could spend a lot more money than right. I have. <laughs> so anyway, he's my greatest supporter, so I appreciate that. But he's he's allowed me to be able to do this all these years because there's not a lot of money in writing these books. No, I do it because I love it. I love it. And it's so much fun. And, and uh, I'm still doing it, and I'll do it as long as I can. Uh, I've got a book at the publisher right now that is... Uh, hopefully going to be out later this year. And then I've got a book on the Madison Square Garden Rodeos, the unofficial predecessor to the national finals that I think, and it also includes the London rodeos and, and uh, uh, more. So anyway, Gil, I got plans to keep me busy. Oh, I sound like I'm excited for them. Can you uh, clear something up for us a minute? Uh, 
there was a lot of confusion between the RAA and it turned into the IRA and people think it's the IRA that we have today and all that. Can you uh, explain that to us a little bit? Yeah, yeah, I can. Uh, the RAA, Rodeo Association of America, uh, was, uh, like I say, was, was run by professional men that put on rodeos. And, and uh, that, that was, you know, that, that was great. It, was, it, was, it started in 1929, and, and that's when uh, uh, it was really needed. And uh, I then, uh, when the RCA got going, and they really felt if you'll, if anybody's a historian and sees hoofs and horns, you're going to see in the back of it <clears throat> RAA pages on on information that they're having and everything. Well, when the R, uh, when the Rodeo Association of America got going and the Cowboy Turtle Association, for that matter, even before RAA. Uh, it, I mean, before the uh, PR, uh, RCA, uh, it was a lot of the same stuff. But there was a little bit of a difference because the RAA had never included world champions' uh, money with entry fees. And they continued to keep the entry fees out of it. So there were years that the RAA world champion was not the same as the, the uh, Cowboy Turtles Association or the, R, or the RCA. I can't remember exactly when that was. But there were two organizations. RAA kept dwindling down and being less important. And uh, that there were several organizations around the country. And I can't remember if it was the Southwest Rodeo Association and the RAA decided to form. I, I'm, I would have to look that up to make sure I have my the right. I know RAA is one of them. I'm just not sure about uh, the other, uh, the Southwest. But neither one of them would take the other's name when they changed the name. They wanted to merge but neither one of them would give up their name. So they had to get a different name. And so they chose International Rodeo Association. So uh, what that is, is it was the RAA when they became less important in the information that they were giving to the public. And they joined with I don't know if it was the Southwest or not. I'd have I'd, I'd have to research that, and I will, and I'll let you know. But uh, they went with this other organization, and neither would give up their their name, so they changed it all together and became the IRA. And because of that, today people know the IPRA, which is in fact based, I think, in Oklahoma City and is the other association smaller and, and more in the eastern part of the United States than the PRCA. Um, they have more rodeos in, in that from Oklahoma East and, and uh, such. But uh, people, when somebody says the IRA world champion was, 
because I've tried to get some people inducted into the uh, Oklahoma City, into the uh, National Cowboy and Western Heritage Museum, Rodeo Historical Society, and, and people have been hesitant to vote for them because it said IRA. And it, it in fact, was the RAA. And, the only, and it was just as important. It was just that with the uh, uh, entry fees being eliminated, it wasn't always the same as the RCA world champion in an event. Does, am I making myself clear yeah, or yes. am I? Yes, I think so. Okay. But, okay. but well, it, has, I, it has no connection to the IPRA that we know today. It, right? Absolutely none. Right. Absolutely none. It was formed after that, and, and that was probably defunct when they formed it. Yeah. Because I don't think they could have used that name right. if right. it was still in, in, in operation. And it just lasted a couple of years. And this is, you know, uh, RCA started in 45. Right. And it was probably... In 48, 49, about in that era when uh, the RAA and, and, and all, it, it, it probably wasn't much earlier than that. And I'm just going to have to look that up and see if I can find, you know, find, find that yeah. other, or make sure of that other organization. Right, so. right. Well, it's just and, a lot of confusion there with people, you know, and because, but some of those old IRA champions were just as, I mean, that, that, that was as good as it got back then, you know. Well, uh, and and not only that, uh, but it it's um, uh, they 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 might have won a world champion with the RCA too. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, right. And and, and so yeah, they they are. But I'm not finding it in here. But I'll have to look and find it. I know it's in the rope. Uh, oh, this is a rope to whip. Look, you no. Know, I've got the Rope to Win book. Yeah. Anyway. So. Rope to Win. What is that one? Is that the Roy Cooper book? What do you mean, Roy Cooper book? I don't know. Which which one is the Rope to Win book? (laughs) Well, I'm sorry, Gil. I don't know every book you read. I'm sorry. Well, I've got Roy Cooper in my book, uh, most definitely, but. He's not the only roper that I have in there. Roy Cooper has his own book, but it's about all of them. Uh, but Rope to Win, do you have that book? I'm not sure if we have it or not. I know we've got the Trolls. Way better. And we got the Funny Man. I can't sure. believe we don't have it, Jimbo. I know. You need to get it. We're really high on the Ropers around here. Right, right. Gail, what did you find out about Madison Square Garden? when you were researching that, that maybe you didn't know? Or... Oh, my gosh. It's going to be the, probably the biggest book I've ever written. Dr. Bud Townsend tells me that it's going to be my my claim to fame. <laughs> I have been working on it for probably four or five years. After I did the barrel book, I really got serious on it, the barrel racing book. Uh, I got serious on it, but I've been collecting information on it, and and I've got about eight, oh, I've got about 300 pages. I've, I've got to slim it down, you know. But uh, I don't know what kind of a book I'm going to write on it. But to me, um, it's, it's about uh, the first Madison Square Garden rodeo was, uh, and, and the first rodeo that was on Manhattan Island, New York City, uh, was in 1922 by Tex Austin. And uh, there was one rodeo in New York before that that Guy Weedick put on in uh, 
1916, and uh, he had all the right cowboys and cowgirls, and he had all, everything was right. He didn't do a thing wrong, but they had a streetcar strike, and they had a polio epidemic going on at the time of the rodeo, and nobody could get to him because he was out at Sheep's Head Bay, which is almost on the Atlantic Ocean. It was a it was a car race car racing place out on Long Island, and and people couldn't get to it. And when that happened, then the people that had given him the money and it was offering fifty thousand dollars in nineteen sixteen. I mean, it was the biggest, and he had trains coming from Cheyenne and trains from Texas, and you know, I mean, he had all the right people there. And it is said that they got a fourth of what their prize money should have been because his uh, sponsors reneged on him. When nobody showed up, they said, well, we're not going to give you this kind of money. And it, it really made him look bad. But we knew Guy Wiedek was a good producer and and, you know, the people that were, they, we, I mean, you know, I'm talking like I was there. I really am not that old. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, uh, they they knew he did the right thing, but it was just the circumstances there in, in the city at the time. So I think because of that happening in 1916, nobody wanted to take a rodeo to Madison Square Garden until Tex Austin did. And he was quite quite unique and quite uh, quite a, a forward thinker. And uh, he, he put on some darn good rodeos. And uh, he had several there. And, and the story is quite interesting. It, it has lots of turns and disappointments and, and recoveries and what that, that you know, uh, I think is going to be wonderful. And I've written about it somewhat. In the Catchpen, which is the Rodeo Historical Societies, I did a, I think a three-part uh, article on on Madison Square Garden, but uh, and I'm featuring a lot of the rodeo people that were involved in each of the eras. They're they're interspersed all through the the story, and uh, there's a lot of things that people that are interested in rodeo are going to want want to know. And I've had the the I've ha- really had a collection of of uh, photographs and things that and of course you know at that time they were taking those long uh, uh, long pictures they made everybody get in an area and and they take pictures that were about twelve rows high and they they they're about you know uh, right. thirty inches long it's a big panoramic and, course, picture yeah. Yes, yes, and uh, they haven't made a camera like that since 1904. But there, but I have probably ten to twelve of those. I don't know what I'll have in the in the book, but um, I, I've got pictures that. Well, in the Rope to Win book, I found two pictures today, going through that that I that I have that I had uh, used from New York. And um, I'll probably use those in the book as well. I've got a lot of pictures of the different eras and uh, the people that went and the people that won. And I've been researching this, and I have a, a researcher that's helping me out in California. 
and she's been very helpful. But I have pulled information and, you know, working on a book for four or five years, you know, you can get a lot of information, especially about, you know, about all this. And it's, it's grown uh, considerably since I started it. And uh, I'm just about finished with it. Uh, but I want my barrel book out first, and then I'll concentrate on, on all the, you know, the rest of it. Did, so, they, did they get mad? I, I read somewhere, maybe in your turtle book or, or some, somewhere, that they got mad when the national finals came along. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, Ned English uh, was either president or the head of the board or something, and he said, if there's a, uh, uh, a big rodeo at the end of the season back in the West, we'll never have another rodeo here at Madison Square Garden. And so, yeah, yeah, he did. Well, did he it kind that. of phase out after that, or when did it actually end, the, the rodeo, the way we knew, the way it was? 1959. That was, that was. So he kept his word then. Yeah, it was 1959, and they never had another one for a while. But, you know, I mean, it, it's one of the wonders of the world, though, at Madison Square Garden. There have been four Madison Square Garden. Right. The, the, so, you know, and that's in the book. I mean, you know, this, there's stuff in this in this book that I think will appeal to New Yorkers, uh, but it, it's an amazing place and what they have done. And uh, I'm I'm always running into people that, you know, were back there. I've just I've just written an article about a, a man that was a young kid at that time, and uh, uh, he actually was taking dance lessons, and his mother and he were going home on the subway, and they went by Madison Square Garden. And they were having a rodeo, and they had the big, uh, oh, the big program, you know, the the posters up and everything. And he said, "Mom, we got to go to that." And she said, I don't have the money. And he saw this cowboy walking across the street. He ran across the street because he was a Brooklyn boy and he was pretty brazen. And he went over and he said, hey, he said, I've never been to a rodeo. Can you get me tickets? And he pulled him out of his back pocket and gave him a couple of tickets that were way up in the top. But the kid got to go and he never went to another dance lesson. He became a cowboy. So... It's just a lot of, you know, I'm having so much fun doing what I'm doing. And thank you so much for asking me to be on this podcast. Uh, I appreciate it. And I appreciate what you guys are doing. You're you're adding so much. Hey, Gail, what are all the books that you've written? Oh, I started out Fearless Funny Man, The History of the Rodeo Clown. And the next one was Belly Full of Bed Springs, The History of Bronc Riding. And that's Saddle Bronc and Bareback. And then I did Cowboy Up, The History of Bull Riding. And then I did Rope to Win, The History of Steer, Calf, and Team Roping. And then I did the Cowboy Turtle Association, The Birth of Professional Rodeo. And then I did Western Women Who Dared to Be Different. They're not all rodeo women, but I'm a Jean Beals is in it who lived in closely in your area and where it was a very good friend of Shote and, yes. and all those guys over there. The, and uh, then, um, well, did I write anything after that? Gee, I don't know. 
<laughs> I've got these two, so whatever. Oh, I, I wrote a children's book, too, which my publisher has reprinted, and it's out. And and you need it for your museum, because it's an inexpensive book, and, and it's Charlie and Amanda meet Rusty the Rodeo Clown. And my college roommate is the artist in it, and I did the writing, and it's a lot of fun for ki- little kids. And uh, it's they have it out at the Pro Rodeo Hall of Fame gift shop, and I know you have things like that that are there in your museum too. Well, where where else can they pick your books up besides right here at our museum and the Cowboy Hall of Fame? Amazon. Uh, my my publisher is Wild Horse Press, and he also bought Aiken Press, E A A I N Press. That was, he did, Mr. Aiken did my first book, and uh, he loved rodeo. And when I finished the first book, uh, Fearless Funny Man, and he was in Austin at the time, his, his company was here, and I could drive 20 miles and take precious pictures that individuals had given me that were one of a kind that I had to give back. And I could look him in the eye and talk with him, and he was just a fine gentleman. And uh, he made all my books until his family just shut it down. And uh, I found Wild Horse Press. Billy Huckabee had uh, been selling rodeo books for at out at Lubbock at the uh, you know Mer- the, the symposium out there that they held every year, and I got to know Billy. And, when he became a publisher, he did my, uh, 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 I think it was my Cowboy Turtle book. And uh, so, anyway, he's done all my books since then. And uh, uh, they're, they're out there, if, if anybody, you know, uh, they're easy to find. Uh, if you just know, you know, what, what you want. And uh, I don't know that I'm the best. Uh, writer in the world, but I, I probably do more research than most because that's important. And, and I'm not doing this. I've been asked to write a lot of books for a specific important cowboy or a cowboy that's done a great deal. But I really, it's not my forte to write about one person. It's my, what I want to do is write about, you know, the whole thing, like Madison Square Garden or barrel racing or, or, you know, the clown. I love getting the information for the clown because none of them knew anything. It wasn't important to them. They, they lived in the now. They didn't care about the past. But once it came out, uh, they're an appreciative group, I'll tell you, you know. And they're, they're important. Be, you know, they're important bull riding probably wouldn't have wouldn't have happened if if there hadn't been somebody to protect the the guys riding and uh all the ins and outs of all of rodeo have been just so much fun to investigate and find out about what was it like to go to the cheyenne frontier days when you were a little girl gail well when i was a little girl i was sitting in the uh bleachers and uh, I'll never forget 
sitting there, and it was just before the rodeo started, and I watched Casey Tibbs as he watched his bronc, saddle bronc, being moved from one chute to the next. And I, my dad had binoculars, and I was watching him, and and I thought, you know, if a cowboy is that concerned about watching his head of stock when it gets to where he's going to get on him, no wonder he's a world champion. And, you know, I think the same thing about Trevor Brazil and, and people like that, that that have done a great deal in their uh, events. Uh, it, it's just amazing. Uh, you know, I grew up with it, so it was no big deal. But since I've become a writer, I get a media pass and sit up there in that media booth right above the bucking chutes and have anything, you know, I, I go early because it gets so crowded. And there are so many international people that are covering uh, Cheyenne. And it's a great rodeo. But I don't know if I, I must tell you this. I was asked by True West to, uh, I got a letter from them, and they asked, asked me to write a paragraph about my favorite rodeo. And this was probably eight years ago, maybe 10, I don't know. I've been doing this for 35 years. So anyway, uh, I wrote my paragraph, and then they said, and then do one sentence about your second and third you know, rodeos. And I figured they were going to a lot of authors and, you know, asking this and, and mine would be one of them. Well, when I got True West, mine was the only one about rodeo. They were asking people about things in the West, but it was different things like the poetry gatherings and, you know, the music gatherings and things like that. Mine was the only one about rodeo. And, and I picked Pendleton. Pendleton is the most amazing rodeo I've ever been to. And for various reasons, it has the Indians there in huge numbers. And they stop in the middle of the rodeo and have them come out and, and uh, in their beautiful finery and everything. And they do dances and they give awards and all of that. They also, every time the announcer announces each event, the audience cheers like, it's the greatest thing since sliced bread. I mean, there's something about the atmosphere there that is just different. And I got a call because uh, this was after I held the rodeo there, uh, the clown reunion at the rodeo. And uh, I can't remember what his name was now, but he was my coordinator and everything. And he was on the board, and he said, Gail, you could have become mayor of Pendleton if you'd have been up here when we got this copy of, of True West. But, you know, Cheyenne, Denver, Pendleton, those three, and, of course, Houston. Houston, uh, I'm, I'm funny. I, it's hard for me to be in an indoor rodeo, so Cheyenne and... and uh, uh, Pendleton, of course, probably they're, they're my favorite, and and I haven't been back for a while, uh, but I went up there consistently for about ten years. Start with the art show the night before, go all the way through it. But but I can't do all that anymore. I I just I want to stay close to my writing right. things. So 
Gail. And, and I, I can call people on the phone and do sure. things like this. This is wonderful now. You know, couldn't do all these things when I started. Right. So. Gail, if you were putting together a Mount Rushmore of rodeo greats, who would they be? Uh, Need four names. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Four and, names? And yeah, from Mount Rushmore. And it doesn't have to be the one with the most gold buckles, maybe the one that was the most influential or the most mainstream. or You know, you could use several different criterias. But. Rodeo Rushmore, Gail. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, Casey Tibbs. Yeah, that's my I first think pick. That's a no-brainer. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's a no-brainer. And... and uh, uh, you know, Jim Shoulders did a tremendous amount, but Casey uh, had a draw that is is different than anybody else that I've ever seen. Uh, and uh, feel like he was I, larger I, than life. Well, and he was on life magazine. Yeah, he was. Cody's got <laughs> Cody's got the magazine. Yeah, I do too. But but uh, for that era in, in history, the, the things he did. You know, he put up, he even has Born to Buck, his movie. I don't know if you've ever seen it or ever. If yeah. you have a copy of it, if you don't, you better get a copy of it. You can get it from his museum up in, in Pier, Fort Pier. But anyway, uh, Casey would be one. Um, Trevor Brazil. Boy, that's hard. It and is that, hard. Yes, it is. Uh, there, there are so many great guys that um, boy, you, you know, you got me. Well, you know, after you I get think, past Casey Tibbs and Jim Shoulders, then you know it's just it's just hard. There's well, so many deserving people. Well, yes, you're. Well, I, I'm not. I didn't put Jim up there, okay, and I okay. didn't you mentioned do it okay. because he was—he had family. He didn't have the personality, but he did. The, he gave back. He gave back, and and there's a lot to be said for giving back after you get through. And 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 uh, there, he was. Well, he's the longest. You know, I, I don't know if you know this or not, but he is the longest sports person to be with one company, Wrangler, of anybody in baseball, football, any place else. Wow. Jim Shoulders. And, and the family is still, you know, Sharon was still doing stuff for Wrangler. And, and what a, what an amazing Thing. So I guess Jim Shoulders would have to go up there. He's hard to deny. And, yeah, Trevor Brazil, and oh boy, you know, you know, I don't want to leave out. I know people that that I didn't get to know. Uh, there were people before I ever got involved in it that were just. I got one. I'm going to throw Ben Johnson on there. Why the heck not? I like him. Well, uh, listen, he he was amazing. He he was absolutely amazing. Uh, I had the opportunity to meet Ben. Uh, we uh, gave a longhorn steer 
to a fundraiser that was held down near Houston at a ranch. And uh, our ranch manager took him down there. And we were standing by the little uh, temporary chute that, uh, you know, I mean, he was in, in a little cape. Uh, what, what, am I, what am I trying to say? Um, portable pens. Right. And we had a little Norwegian elk hound pup. And they and our ranch manager had some straw in there on the on the ground, and he was there. and And this ranch was not a Longhorn ranch. This was a ranch that had some other breed of cattle. But we they were going to have this big sale and auction, and they had twenty, thirty, thirty uh, personas from Hollywood. And, uh, so we were down there and, and I was standing there cause my little Norwegian elk hound was under the feet of the, the steer. And I was afraid I was going to have to rescue him or something. But anyway, here came Ben and his wife and, and they were two of the people that were there from Hollywood and his wife picked up that, our dog and wasn't going to let it go, wasn't going to give it back to me. But anyway, I stood there and, and listened to Ben talk to, you know, two or three people that were there that, you know, kept changing and everything. And he was so down to earth and so natural. And uh, his, his popularity and persona had not changed him one bit. He was just the same ordinary person that, that, everybody loves and hopes, you know, those are the people that to me are that get fame, but don't let it go to their head. They use it in good ways. And I do believe Ben Johnson did. Yes. So that's kind of a rare commodity these days. Seems like it is very rare. And I can understand that. It's, it's, when anybody gets to be famous for various reasons, you right, know, right, uh, right. It, 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 everybody's pinging on you. Right, you know, I right. go to the finals every year, and, and I see these guys that are up at the top and everything and the things that are happening to them, and I see things, and I hear things that they're doing, and, and there's some of them that are so, you know, so wild and crazy, and, and I'm, not, I'm not saying, you know, we've all got different personalities. God had a lot to do with making a variety of people and he did a good job and uh, not everybody's the same and how boring our world would be if it was like that but uh, uh, cowboys you know there's nothing like them nothing like them cowboys and cowgirls I say when I say cowboys I mean cowgirls too they know the land they respect the land they know the animals they respect the animals they know people, and most people, I think, are very respected, unless they don't earn it. So, you know. Right. The Western way of life is nothing better. I'm sorry I didn't make your Mount Rushmore. Well, nobody ever does. Everybody <laughs> can come up with two or three, but nobody can put the fourth one up. No one likes to throw that fourth name out there. Because then well, they get to thinking, oh, my gosh, it's this guy and that yeah, guy. And, I can't leave him off. You can't uh, leave Ty Murray off and name leave. Larry Mahan. I mean, right. you know, you just it, Well, you hard. can. You can, can but you, it's hard. You know, well, but, but a lot of people haven't gone all the way back. 
Right. And I've got I've got one person right now I am trying very hard to get inducted into the Hall of Fame and he's been on been considered for many years by me and has never been chosen. And that is uh, uh, Gordy <laughs> Alvy Gordon. And Alvy Gordon was back in uh, he was born in 1910 and he was in rodeo from 1924 to 1956. And he was a saddle bronc rider, and he never won a world. Uh, he uh, took, uh, he went to Australia when they had the competition between Canada, the United States, and Australia. He was the, the head of that group of, of uh, Americans that went. And uh, he uh, was picked up by Gene Autry when he was uh, drafted, and uh, he inducted in the Army, and they put him at Luke Air Force Base with Gene Autry because Gene saw how he had worked in rodeo. Not only did he compete, but he also was a shoot boss. And he worked for, oh, my gosh, he worked for Andy Uregi. He worked for uh, Leo Kramer from Montana. Uh, He worked for about four people, Colonel Johnson, uh, he worked uh, uh, for, well, no, it wasn't Colonel, Everett, Everett Colburn he worked for. Colonel had already gone. And, uh, uh, but the thing that he did, in addition to this, that I think is so important is, and I'm sure you all know this, I didn't until I uh, uh, interviewed him, is the uh, flank strap used to have a buckle. And when he was at Luke Air Force Base with Gene Autry, who was who was in publicity and everything, and Gene wanted to fly and had to finally leave Luke to be able to fly. But anyway, uh, Gore, uh, uh, Alvy saw the parachute quick release, and he drew a picture of it, sent it to Hamley Saddle Shop in Pendleton, Oregon, and said, you know, we, you need to put this on flank straps. Those poor pickup men spend all their time unbuckling the buckle after a ride. And, and therefore, that got made, and uh, that is now the way the flank strap is, apparently, from a parachute release trip. And <clears throat> nobody's ever... It, it, it's sad because everybody votes for their contemporary friends. Right. And and I feel like if you just read all, you know, and and choose the most you know, the most um, the one who has earned it the most. And, oh. and and of course he's in the deceased. He he passed away after I interviewed him in 2003. Uh, I think he died in 2004. But uh, he was he was one of those like Mark Clennon that never tooted his own horn, never got out there and did wild and crazy things. He was just you know right. he 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 was just one of those guys along with everybody else. But he worked for Everett Colburn at all his rodeos and shoot. Uh, at, uh, he retired when he got out of the the army, and I think he he had a, a an injury that kept him but he was a shoot boss all the way up until i think 56 Hmm. and uh, so anyway that you know there are so many people in rodeo that need attention and and uh deserve it but you know 
You know who I'm most excited for on this next one that might get in or might not get in is old Guy Allen. I think he's very you deserving bet. to get in, for sure. He might even go on that Mount Rushmore, Jimbo, 19 times. He's the only guy I know that carries the nickname Legend. Everybody calls him Ledge or Legend. Well, I don't know why he didn't get in before now. He's been on the. He's been considered many, many times. But some of these guys that don't don't push themselves, uh, that ha- that does it doesn't happen for them, and and that's sad because I I feel like the best are the ones that ought to be there. Definitely. Yes. Definitely. Like well, we're just can't. glad they're considering him. Old nineteen time world champion right there. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think so he's finally will. about retired. So, yeah. Well, he works the oil fields now. Oh yeah. And 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 so you know, but but he just kind of quit and you know didn't didn't uh, didn't say anything. And I don't know. I, I mean, he's been on the. I mean, I I do all the interviews as Jimbo knows uh, for the uh, oral. Uh, I do the oral histories at induction weekend. And uh, uh, I tried it. I didn't do all of them for a while. I had Peggy Robinson helping me, but now I have been doing them all myself. And, uh, you know, that's 12 in three days. So that's kind of a full slate. I don't get a, much of a chance until the evening to see in or, or do anybody else, but it's so much fun. And I enjoy the research, getting the questions ready for them and everything. And I'm ready for it. <laughs> a lot of people don't know he's really an okie jimbo pretty much yeah 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 well you know you know what oklahoma is don't you the best cowboy country in the world gail well well that's true that's true uh of course i live in austin texas so I have to say what I hear down here, and I that's I all hearsay it. down there. That's all hearsay down there in that Texas area. <laughs> I've got my Oklahoma. Most of them are Okies that move down there. <laughs> what? You what? I said most of them are Okies that move down there. All them good cowboys. Why did they move down here? Well, the weather's a little better down there, I guess. I don't know. Oh really? One hundred and three today. Yeah, yeah. We like we like hot weather. Us cowboys. That means oh, yeah, it's rodeo yeah, time. Hot rodeo season well not two months of it i mean mm. it is is now being two months of, of that weather and that that's a little bit over the top i'm ready to have a nice cool day and i think we're going to have one next tuesday when it happens. yeah so, we got one coming you know. through jimbo you got anything else for gail today well just want to thank her and, and uh tell her to, and thank her for the work she does you know keeping this history alive there aren't very many people willing to put in the work that she does to do it. And, uh, and it just really means a lot to us because uh, we love the cowboy way of life. And, and uh, we just uh, really appreciate what she does. More than the cowboy way of life, we love the rodeo way of life. Right, we both right. grew up in rodeo families, and we really appreciate everything she does because there wouldn't be a history of rodeo to tell if Gail didn't do all this hard work to do it. I know. Nobody well, else is well, going to do it. Now, let's just back off a minute. Let, let me say something. Uh, it's not been work. Let me just say, you can thank me for all the fun I've had. Okay? <laughs> okay. Well, we thank you for all the fun you've had. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> thank you, guys. I really appreciate your even asking me to be on this. Take care, and I'm going to get over there and see your museum because I'm hearing nothing but good things about it. 
We can't wait to see it. And you can set it straight. And if we got anything wrong in here, Jim, uh, or not Jimbo, uh, Gail. I was <laughs> Jimbo's our resident rodeo historian. But when you come up here, we're going to be real nervous as you're looking through everything because we know we're going to no, have a bunch of edits no, to no. do when you leave. But No, I learn something every time I go to a, a, a well-done uh, museum. And uh, uh, it's, it, it's, you know, I can learn. I can learn from yours. I really can, uh, and and I I appreciate what you're doing because museums are having. You know, museums are tough, and and you got to have uh, a lot of commitment to have a museum and have it uh, open for the public. And uh, I appreciate what you do, and and I wish you all the best. Well, thank you, Gail. Get up here and see us soon, and everybody get one of her books bought. Um, right off of Amazon good. or anywhere you buy a book. Absolutely. Thank you. Appreciate it. You guys have a good day. The rest Thanks, of Gail. the day. Have a good one. You bet. Bye. Thanks, Gail. Till next Bye. week. This has been another edition of the Cowboys of the Osage podcast. Thank you, Jimbo. Thank you. I enjoyed it. How you can catch us everywhere where you can catch a podcast. See y'all next week.